You're listening to the Ambition Incubator podcast, and I'm your host, Deirdre Morrison. Creativity is something that we all need, use, and indeed have in spades, but we don't always appreciate it or know how to encourage it. In this occasional series of conversations, I'm talking to creative professionals, people who get paid to provide creativity on tap, and people who've been able to remain creatively successful over the course of their careers. We'll talk about the highs and lows of this kind of work, try to disentangle their secrets for success, and find out whether Steve Jobs was right when he said that real artists ship. Creativity is obviously one of my favorite topics, and it's something that I help people to work on, develop and nurture quite a lot. But I don't think I've done anything on this show about the topic, so I'm gonna put that right today. And if you want to find out more about what creativity is, how to nurture it, hang out with me for the next while so that we can talk a little bit about how it happens and what we can do to promote, protect and enhance it. Now, creativity really is one of those things, isn't it? Some people see it as a mysterious force, while others dedicate their lives to trying to pin it down or dissect it, a bit like some poor misfortunate butterfly pinned in a frame by a lepidopterist. Maybe it's somewhere in between. Maybe you're born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline. Actually, let me put it this way. You were born with it. It's part of the human basic package. But how it was described to you and how you were described to you has shaped your understanding of and engagement with this core part of your intelligence. How people perceive creativity is changing, by the way. And generationally, we're seeing more people believing more and more in their own creativity. If you check out the State of Create surveys, let's rewind a little bit. Like so much of our thinking about what goes on inside our heads, creativity is somewhat mired in historical concepts of what it is and what it isn't. How we see creativity now wouldn't have been recognisable to our ancestors. Now, bear in mind, it has changed quite radically over the last couple of thousand years, but some of the notions do still linger. You know, for the ancients, creativity wasn't something that came from humans. It was almost like a divine intervention. It was something that was put into us. The ideas were put into us by the gods. And then as we came out of the Dark Ages and up towards the Renaissance, these ideas, I guess, changed a little bit and we began to see the individuation of creativity for almost the first time. And we have artists emerging as individuals. We know their names. Because, you know, even up until and beyond the Renaissance, there was an atelier system where works of art were produced in collective environments. Now, I'm not an art historian by any stretch, but roughly speaking, back in the day, these collective workshops existed much like a production line to produce saleable works of art. And there would have been acknowledged masters and so on within that, but it was not necessarily the work of one person when you had something being painted or carved or built or whatever. For instance, Leonardo da Vinci and many of his contemporaries would have worked in a sort of studio. And some of them then went on to become famous individual artists in and of their own right. We remember their names. And then, of course, as we went on and we moved through different ways of thinking by way of the Enlightenment and so on, the individual and personhood and independence and liberty and all of those concepts started to take hold. And somewhere in that mix, creative output became our individual creative output in many instances. Though, of course, there's rarely a cutoff point in ways of thinking. We have to be exposed to ideas either through inspiration of some kind or absorption for them to have an impact on us. What we don't know, we don't know, as they say. So that means that many people consider artistic talent a divine gift. 
something that you're born with. The evidence, however, suggests that it's not that simple. There's the development of talent, which is now fairly widely discussed. And you maybe heard me mention Angela Duckworth at some stage, whose book on what kind of people succeed and why is one that I recommend all the time. It's called Grit, by the way, but I discovered last time I mentioned it that it's best to keep Miss Duckworth's name and the book title separate because I find them nearly impossible to say back to back. We also have intriguing work on insight and inspiration and how and why they happen and how much of a role intuition plays in this picture. As you can imagine, as this work continues, people who belong to societies or education systems that have traditionally considered intuition too nebulous or unreliable or airy-fairy to be considered a useful tool, then it's easy to see why their creativity might not fire on all cylinders. Or conversely, if the beliefs held suggest that creativity is something that you're gifted with, that it just happens to some blessed individuals, then there's a strong likelihood that talent which could be developed lies dormant because it didn't spring fully formed from the individual in a prodigy-like fashion. Now, I've talked with creatives about this previously on the show, and if you haven't heard it, I'd strongly recommend you check out episode 45 with Darren Fisher, in which we discuss this very topic. But now we're at a stage where the scales are, I think, tipping in a much bigger setting. But let's look at what we've got here. First of all, we have this idea that creativity has to come from within us now and that it all has to be unique and of the individual. Let's call it the originality fallacy. Realistically, every idea, no matter how progressive, is dependent on building blocks of some kind, and they rarely, if ever, spring forth fully formed. And perhaps our search for the nature of creativity does hark back to our ancient interpretation and is somehow intertwined with our search for the divine. This next bit, though, (laughs) it's a little bit like the chorus of my personal song, so feel free to join in if you've heard it before. Understanding a little bit about the brain really helps to work with creativity. Pretty much everyone is aware that we've got two hemispheres in the brain and maybe less aware of the two networks in the brain. And there's a whole lot of other things going on, but today I'm just going to focus on the networks and the hemispheres. So we have a right and a left hemisphere of the brain and they look very similar and they're both involved in creativity. How they differ is in how they see the world. And this can relate to our linguistic capabilities, our access to metaphor, humor and ability with numbers. Now, because the brain is so complex and there are so many factors at play, it's very unusual for scientists to describe a part of the brain being solely responsible for something these days. Instead, listen for things like scientists saying such and such a part of the brain is associated with or involved with this function or process. There's just too much going on in there and too many moving parts and fluctuating factors to break it down like the classic machine-like view of turning cogs and creating standardized output. Honestly, when you stand and look up marveling at the vast unknowable universe, looking inward is not really that different. There's that much to be discovered. And I guess that's why I find it so incredibly fascinating. Our brains are so magnificently plastic, that is, they have the ability to change, that they can even transpose functions. So, for example, if one part of the brain is damaged or fails in some way, and other parts of the brain can pick up that function, then they do. So, you know, it's not just the one part of the brain can do one thing, but it might be associated with one thing. It might be involved in it, but not solely responsible because it's such a complex organism. So we've got the right hemisphere of the brain, which is seen as kind of 
the creative hemisphere, really. But we have to nip that concept in the bud because you actually need both halves of the brain, both hemispheres of the brain for creativity. Both halves are in operation for pretty much anything, in fact. So with the right hemisphere, we have very big picture thinking. We've got a lot of empathetic thinking. We have a lot of implicit language and visual imagery, which I guess is why it's associated with creativity. And then on the other side, on the left hemisphere, we've got explicit speech. So the meanings of specific words and so on. We've got the ability to make lists and to plan and to see detail and organization and structure. And if you think about the world in terms of how the brain sees things, you've got on the one hand, the right hemisphere looking at the entire forest. And on the left hemisphere, it's looking at a single pine cone in great detail. Now, on top of that, because the brain is very multidimensional in its processes, we have got the default mode network and we've also got the task positive network. The default mode network is our brain's natural resting state. So when we're not working on something specific, the default mode network is in operation. And it's constantly scanning for things that might be opportunities or threats. So that's where you get the ability to spot an opportunity, but also maybe a tendency towards worry or anxiety. So the default mode network is also scanning through time in the past and future. And when that looks backwards in the time frame, it can form a sort of a rumination process as well. Then on the other hand, as opposed to the other side, you've got the task positive network. And that's what comes into play when we're focused on the here and now, on doing things in the moment. So mindfulness exercises, for instance, will encourage the task positive network to kick in or when you're performing something that requires your attention. And it stops that wandering of the mind along the timeline. Now, the thing with these is that they can't operate at the same time. So if you've got something that you're doing, then you can't really be worrying or ruminating. And vice versa, if you're worrying or ruminating, it's very hard to actually focus on what you're doing. Now, back to the hemispheres for a second, because joining those two together, we've got the corpus callosum, which is a really interesting part of the brain and one that for a long time was a bit of a puzzlement as it didn't appear to be doing all that much. It's a bundle of fibers, which are not the typical gray matter that we associate with the brain, but rather white matter that runs between the two and joins the two hemispheres of the brain. And it wasn't obvious what it was doing. So for a long time, no one really understood it. It was even thought at one point that it just kept the hemispheres in place, you know, sort of stopped them from flopping around inside your skull. But in actual fact, it conveys messages between the two hemispheres. And how they worked this out was uh, back in the 1960s, they did some experiments. First of all, they did some on cats and then monkeys, and they severed the corpus callosum to see if the animal was able to function afterwards. And they were. And there was really very little difference perceived by the researchers in a sense. So the animals were going about their normal functions and it all looked like they carried on more or less as normal. Then in trying to find a solution for some cases of severe epilepsy prior to any other treatments being available, it was proposed that severing the corpus callosum would actually help to limit the extent of what was being experienced by these patients during their seizures. So some patients volunteered for this treatment, which was obviously highly experimental, and nobody knew what difference it would make to the quality of their lives. And they underwent the procedure, which effectively cut their brains in two. Now, they were able to function after these procedures. However, they didn't necessarily continue exactly as before. For instance, understanding metaphor or humor or certain other things that required both hemispheres to be operating to combine the implicit and explicit aspects of it. 
So language, for instance, needs both hemispheres operating together in an integrated way. But after the procedure, this was not available to those patients anymore. And this gives us some clues about why both hemispheres of the brain need to be involved in creative activity and why our effectiveness is enhanced by both of them operating in tandem. So in terms of nurturing creativity, we've already talked about how the brain is a complex system internally and assuming that any part of it is operating in isolation is misleading. But beyond the brain, we also have to consider this. Within our bodies and beyond our bodies, it isn't isolated there either. From the physical realm, the way we support our brain function through our physical needs impacts our creativity. Sleep, diet, exercise, hydration, all of these basics. We can run them thin for a while, as many of us do in our youth, but if we're serious about nurturing our creativity in the long haul, we need to pay close attention to these things. It's a bit like the filter in your dishwasher, right? Eventually it starts clogging up the flow if you don't tend to it. And I can't emphasize this particular bit enough, but your brain needs rest. And by rest, I don't just mean sleep. I mean downtime, time to wander, time to not do anything, time where you're not expecting it to produce anything. So please don't shortchange yourself on rest. Consider it part of your battery charging routine. Quite often that downtime, that wandering aspect of the brain, that time where you're not doing anything productive, air quotes, that can actually act like a little bit of a pump primer for your, um, for your creativity, because that's when we're loading our brain with contextual information. So one of the challenges for many people is how to do that. It can be quite simple, really. You just follow your curiosity. You know, we gather material that can form the basis for later inspiration as we're doing just that. We're not necessarily setting out to do it. We're not on some kind of shopping mission where we're out to get bits of information that we know we'll use later. But by being curious about things, we gather up information and we come across things that are filed away in the internal system. And then later on, we join the dots and we make connections using our intuition and the meaning making aspect of our brains. Of course, for some of us, the challenge is to rein in that tendency to pull on the threads and go down the rabbit holes. And if that sounds like you, by the way, come and talk to me about how to support taking your creativity from idea to reality. But there are times when we can feel like we've got bucket loads of contextual information and still strive to join the dots. You know, it just doesn't always work quite as well as we'd like it to. It's a bit like when you're trying to remember a dream and you can't quite pin it down. You know it's in there, but you just can't quite get it in the shape that it should be. Understanding the way the brain works helps us to see why people have eureka moments when they're in the shower or out walking or doing something repetitive, like peeling potatoes or whatever. Their mind has gone into what I call in myself the drop-down state, and it's just a little bit of a lower frequency. There's not so much chatter. I'm not actively trying to find the answer. So we're not particularly thinking about anything, and then boom, suddenly we have this inspired idea that seems to come from nowhere. But of course, it doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from within us because we've absorbed something at some point along the way, and now we've retrieved it in this context. It's a synthesis event. So there's an awful lot of things to think about here in, in this field. I mean, the next natural topic for me at the moment is relationships because they have such a huge and often unrecognized effect on our creativity, both currently and historically. Of course, Every single one of us has had our creativity affected differently by these. And when we look closely at it and start to free up any stuff caught in the filter, we arrive at what I call the blueprint of you. 
everybody is where they are with creativity based on a different genetic heritage, based on different cultural heritage, different professional journeys, different personal journeys. So identifying our creative sweet spots, enhancing them and discovering how to maintain them and expand them and go beyond them is well worth doing for a richer life experience. But I would say that. Anyway, thanks for listening. I really appreciate you spending the time with me. And I could go on for a lot longer about this. And no doubt I will again at some point. But in the meantime, come and visit me at neurocreative.studio if you want to see how we can enhance your creative experience. Hope to see you there soon. You're still here? Great. Look, I know there's a lot to choose from out there, so thanks for flying with Ambition Incubator Airlines, and I look forward to seeing you on board again soon. Seriously, though, thank you for tuning in. My guests and I love hearing about what inspires you on the show and what advice has made a difference in your life or work and what you'd like more of. So get in touch. If you want to know about my other work, head over to ambitionincubator.com for details. And don't forget to hit subscribe for more great interviews, advice, and bite-sized brain science every week.